Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Chapter three of Pierrot's book, Philosophy as a Way of Life, ends with a section called Learning How to Read. And at the very start of the section, he talks about the multiplicity of different writings out there and the different levels that they're at in terms of the spiritual exercises that they're providing. He says there's a kind of unity running through them. And earlier on in the chapter, he's talked about a number of different spiritual exercises that directly involve reading and study. So you can't really do philosophy as a way of life, at least according to the ancient models, without engaging in a lot of reading. And it's not something that you read once and then you get the stuff down and then you put the books away. No, you're continually going back to reading and rereading in part because that's how you in fact study. And so for those who are you know, more into practice and less into reading. There's a lot of really useful stuff that, that Ado brings to light here, calling out of ancient philosophy. We should mention as well that practices of writing could also be quite important as spiritual exercises. But here he's primarily talking about how you engage other people's writings that are available. And so the question that we're really asking in this subsection of the chapter is how should we approach philosophical writings? And this is a really interesting one because as he points out, much of what we'd learn from today's academic philosophy, with some exceptions, of course, would actually take us off track. It, it would teach us how to read as bad readers, as readers who can't get quite what is going on, who are more interested in getting through the material or just give me the arguments or the main points, right? And that's to lose sight of something quite important. And so there are a number of different points that he makes that I think are very important and helpful, not just for doing philosophy as a way of life in the present, but also for understanding how Hado himself approaches these things and how ancient philosophers and their students would approach this. So the first thing he tells us is we really need to consider writings, whatever they happen to be, as situated or motivated. And part of this is we have to think about them as coming out of a school. Like he says, they're products of a philosophical school in the most concrete sense of the term in which a master forms his disciples, trying to guide them to self-transformation and realization. So the written work is a reflection of pedagogical, psychagogic, and methodological preoccupations. Now, some are more than others. You could think about Epictetus's discourses in Enchiridion. He didn't write those down. They are the results of his teaching and of his student Arius, who thought, well, this is really important stuff. I'm going to write this down. We're going to keep this. We could also think of like, you know, Epicurus's lists of sovereign maxims or golden sayings or whatever framework you want. Principal doctrines is another way to translate it. And the Vatican sayings, putting together lists of those sort of sayings, sort of like Epictetus's Enchiridion as well, those are very important. That's a genre of literature. Is it meant to be like the same thing as a philosophical treatise? No, not, not exactly. It's serving a different purpose. 
as Addo is going to tell us, every philosophical text is from some particular framework. He says, when we read the works of ancient philosophers, the perspective we've described should cause us to give increased attention to the existential attitudes underlying the dogmatic edifices, that's the buildings or structures we encounter. Now, that's not to say that it's exclusively motivated in that way, but that we should never lose sight of that. So he tells us whether we have to do with dialogues, as in the case of Plato, class notes, as in the case of Aristotle, treatises like those of Plotinus, commentaries like those of Proclus, and we might multiply all sorts of other things. Think about letters, think about other ways that, well, inscriptions, all those other types of genres. He tells us that a philosopher's works cannot be interpreted without taking into consideration the concrete situation which gave birth to them. Now, what do we mean by the concrete situation? We don't mean, you know, what was Epictetus doing on Thursday, you know, June 2nd, between three and four. It's not that granular, you could say. But we do have to think about, well, what was he doing? What kind of pupils was he teaching? Stoic literature provides us with some great examples here, right? Epictetus was teaching people in his school, as was his teacher Musonius Rufus, the lectures of whom we have some remainders of and some fragments. Marcus Aurelius was not doing that. Marcus Aurelius was managing an empire and writing a book literally to himself that we call the Meditations. Seneca was also managing affairs, trying to get a spoiled brat emperor to not be the complete garbage person that he was, that's Nero, right? To be less of a schmuck right? But also to provide some guidance to his Epicurean friend Lucilius in what we call the letters to Lucilius or moral letters or letters from a Stoic, depending on which edition you have. Each of those is a different concrete situation. Plutarch with his treatises sent to different people for different reasons. All of these have a function to them. So we want to try to think about that. We want to be cognizant about that. Another key thing is Every philosophical work is in some sense a monologue. One person is talking, or you could say in platonic dialogues, you've got different people talking, but it's talking to us, right? But implicitly, every single philosophical work, according to Addo, and he's totally right about this, if it's a philosophical work, it is implicitly a dialogue. We can enter into dialogue with it as we do with Aristotle when we're going through his treatises and lecture notes and trying to piece them all together or when we're reading platonic dialogue. So like he says, the dimension of the possible interlocutor is always present within it. This explains incoherencies and contradictions with which modern historians discover with astonishment in the works of ancient philosophers. In philosophical works such as these, thoughts cannot be expressed according to the pure absolute necessity of a systematic order. It takes into account the level of the interlocutor, the concrete temple, the logos in which it's expressed. And so he, he goes on from there. And this, this bringing up this logos is another important point. Ado tells us every logos, every discourse, right? Every argument, you could say, every train of thought is indeed a system in some sense, but putting together the totality of logoi of any given author is not itself a system. So putting together all of Aristotle's books on a shelf does not give you an Aristotelian system as such, despite what later systematizers would like to do with it, usually debasing it in the process, right? Same thing with Platonic dialogue, same thing with Seneca's various letters and works, same thing with others as well. 
Even when a work appears to be completely systematic, Ado says, well, we have to be a little bit on guard about that. He brings up this idea of different starting points corresponding to situations. And, and he brings up Aristotle, and this is great because if you read Aristotle's works, one of the things that you'll see him saying most often is, eh, let's consider this from another angle or beginning from another starting point. So he takes a phenomena and he zeroes in on it from this perspective. And then he zooms back out and says, eh, let's look at it now from over here. Oh, let's, let's now go back here and look at it this way. Those are all motivated in one way or another. We don't always know exactly what the motivation is, but we know that Aristotle thought, for example, it was important in discussing politics to discuss household management, and that meant discussing slavery. And that meant talking about whether slavery could in any in a sense be natural or just by force. Aristotle, by the way, considered most slavery to actually be against nature and to be by force. Now, later interpreters of Aristotle misused him to, to argue that he thought that slavery, particularly that you discovered in the, the new world, was actually just by nature, distorting Aristotle in, in the process. So different starting points correspond to different concrete situations. Another key thing is that, like Ado is going to say, you write different works for different kinds of readers. They come at different levels of spiritual development. He uses Plotinus's Aeneids as an example with this. Some of the things are more advanced than others. Some are less advanced. So you assign these to people differently. We can say similar things with Plato's dialogues. Some of Plato's dialogues, you're like, why does Socrates make such a bad argument? Well, because he's making a bad argument for a dummy who he's talking to who can't recognize a bad argument, even though you, careful reader, might be able to recognize it. So those are all important aspects. And then finally, this is something I think is really quite important to take into account. There's this idea that people have about philosophy and about reasoning in general and debate that you put out your arguments and by themselves arguments are convincing or they're no good. And when you spend time looking at arguments, you come to realize that they all require something. You don't have any perfect pure argument that does all the work needed to construct a worldview or get people to be motivated by themselves. There's always something else going on involved there. And Ado says we should not forget that many a philosophical demonstration, so now we're going beyond just arguments, demonstration derives its evidential force not so much from abstract reasoning, which is not to say it doesn't use abstract reasoning, but not so much from abstract reasoning as from an experience, which is at the same time a spiritual exercise. So he says, you know, this is the case for the Plotinian demonstration of the immortality of the soul. Let the soul practice virtue, he said, and it will understand that it is immortal, right? And he gives an example of Augustine as well and the Trinity. Augustine thought that the human mind is an image of the Trinity and you can make it better or, or worse, right? We might actually think about Rene Descartes in this respect. Is Descartes presenting you with pure argumentation? No, the meditations are spiritual exercises, as he tells you in the work and in his letters about it, right? So this is not something that should be gotten rid of in philosophy. And that's what ancient philosophers realized. But modern philosophers lost sight of. This should actually be embraced and understood. 
that it may take some level of spiritual development before certain demonstrations really click or get traction or whatever metaphor you want to use for that. So these are all things to keep in mind in terms of how we should approach philosophical writings of antiquity. I would say that this also goes for any sort of philosophy as a way of life in medieval thought, in modern philosophy, even down to the present and perhaps how we also ought to read Ado himself. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.